right, welcome to Journey Through Scripture, day 349. Today we're going to be in Malachi chapter 1 through chapter 216, and then Psalm 143, and we'll finish up in Revelation chapter 6. Okay, so I know you're all wondering how to correctly pronounce his name. It is Malachi. Just kidding, but I love saying saying it like that. No, Malachi is fine. Um, and uh, what to know about him. So he is the uh, final post-exilic prophet, and uh, he is prophesying after or during the time of Nehemiah. So that would be somewhere in the neighborhood of about 430 B.C., uh, the temple has been built. The city has been rebuilt. You know, there's a considerable population living in Judah. Uh, but as we'll see, things are not going well. And the community has degenerated once again into the situation they were in, you know, uh, leading up to the exile. And this is kind of all part of the biblical storyline, too. You know, because you've got these grand promises of God to bring them back to the land and to give them this glorious future where Yahweh is dwelling among them. And, you know, even the bells on the horses are holy and this um, terrific temple structure that Ezekiel had envisioned in chapters 40 through 48 and all that stuff. And actually, when they get back to the land, things are very much as it was as they were before. And this is because God has not yet decisively eradicated sin. He has not yet decisively transformed his people. This promise of the Spirit, right? Think of, for example, um, Ezekiel's New Covenant texts, where he promises to, to remove their heart of stone and give them to the heart of flesh. That has not yet taken place. And so this is part of the way in which the Hebrew Bible really amps up this anticipation that uh, awaits its fulfillment. Uh, it awaits God's action. And uh, uh, it's probably worth noting that this indeed is the book that ends the Old Testament in the um, order uh, in which the books are, are uh, occur in our English Bibles, which fo- actually follows the, the, the Greek Septuagint uh, ordering. Uh, the, the, uh, the Hebrew Bibles end in, uh, end in the book of Second Chronicles. And neither one is more correct than the other, Uh, uh, like the table of contents is not inspired in that way. But both orders, I think, are noteworthy because they end on a word of anticipation of what God will do. Although I will note that, you know, the Hebrew order, which ends in 2 Chronicles, ends with that famous phrase, let him go up, right, with the decree of Cyrus. And so the anticipation is, all right, let's get this post-exilic community going, Whereas the arrangement in the uh, the Greek translation in the Septuagint ends on a much more pessimistic note, so it's like optimism about returning physically to the land versus pessimism. Okay, that's happened, and things are just as terrible as they were before. Okay, so the oracle of the word of Yahweh to Israel by Malachi, and Malachi means my messenger. Malak is the Hebrew word for angel or messenger, which have, some have suggested this might not even be a, a personal name. Um, but, you know, I think, it, I think it could go either way. Um, and now the, the book is, is uh, structured with uh, six kind of exchanges between the people of God and God, and where, where God basically like brings up an issue 
the these these six different issues that he sees that he is um, that he is his, is charging them with, and you really see the the exchange nature in these in the first two that we see, uh, but you get it in the others as well. It's just that the structure looks a little bit different. So here, God says, "I have loved you." Um, so that's what God says. And how do they reply in this exchange? Uh, how have you loved us? Okay, which of course is very rich uh, because God has so set them apart as a people, right? He's loved them. He's brought them into the land. He's He's provided for them. He's done all this good for them. Um, like the entire history of the Old Testament is how God's loved them. And even what they, though they've given him a, z- a zillion reasons not to, right? He still loved them and has been faithful to their covenant. So like, what do you mean, how have you loved us? But you can imagine, right, because their wickedness is is killing any any measure of hope that they have and so the the city is filled with all kinds of injustice and wickedness and evil going on they're facing things like famine like we've seen in other prophets and and the frustration of their efforts to um to get back on their feet and everything like it's not a Jerusalem is not a good place to be in right now and so you know they're they're experiencing uh, what life is like and it's hard to, to see, well, how have you loved me, God? And, you know, I think we can all kind of relate to that, um, that you sometimes you just look around at your life, especially if you're experiencing the consequences of a lot of sinful decisions, but maybe not, right? And things aren't going so great. Do you really love me, God? But then God actually gives us things in the Bible that designate actually, yeah, here's how you know that I love you, not whether or not you know, such and such is going well for you, but you know because of what I've done for you. And of course, the chief example of that is is for God loved the world in this way that he gave his son. But uh, of course, we're not there yet in the biblical storyline. So how have you loved us? So then then he, he, he basically points out, uh, well, you remember Isaac, the son of Abraham? Well, he had two sons, right? And, uh, and, Think about Esau, your brother. So he's basically going to make the point by comparison. Um, yet, uh, so is not Esau also, is he not Jacob's brother, declares Yahweh. Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. So look at the example of Esau. If you want to look at somebody whom I have not, quote unquote, loved, look at Esau. Look at Edom, okay? Because what does Edom look like? I've laid waste to his hill country, left his heritage to the jackals of the desert, which is very prophet-sounding, right? It will become a haunt of jackals. And um, and and you're standing here in a rebuilt city. They are not. But even if they say, you know, we're shattered, but we'll rebuild the ruins and then just, you know, um, bootstrap it and, and, and rebuild, uh, Yahweh of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. So and even if they do rebuild, they're not going to endure. You guys are going to endure. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom Yahweh is angry forever. That's the difference. I'm not angry with you forever, but I'm angry with Esau forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is Yahweh beyond the border of Israel. Now, two things about the language of this uh, this paragraph so we have the line here that, of course, Paul quotes in Romans 9, uh, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And um, we have to just be a little bit careful <clears throat> about thinking about things in ways that the 
that the that the that the choices for English translation encourage us to think. So when we say the word hate, right, it means this disposition like there's nothing right someone can do, um, and you just like want their worst. And um, but the concept here, informed by the con- by the context, is what it's that they fall under God's judgment because of their sin. They've not joined themselves to Israel. They've not repented of their sins. They've not abandoned their false gods. Therefore, they are in a position of of being under my hand of judgment um, in a very final way. And that's what God's quote-unquote hatred is. Just like, and so, I mean, I think it would be appropriate to say that the people whom God eventually will consign to hell, to punishment, to at the final judgment, that is an that would fall under this category. They have I hated, not meaning hate in the sense that we say say it, but hate in a much more concrete way. That um, that they are the objects now of my judgment, and that's final. Um, the other thing too is the end of this paragraph envisions them looking to the land of Edom and to what God has done in His wrath against them, and saying, "Great is Yahweh beyond the border of Israel." Uh, now, the statement, of course, is something that God wants his people to know, that Yahweh indeed is great even outside your land. He is the God of he, who's made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. Um, but here, great, right? Um, the greatness here is, is, is the word gadal, which means to be strong or to be powerful, okay? Um, just like uh, in Daniel 8, 9 through 10, remember the little horn? <laughs> He becomes great toward the south and then does all like this wicked stuff. So great there simply means he's powerful towards them. And so I think the idea here is not so much um, it's great that these people have perished or something, although there is a goodness to the just judgment of God, of course, in the Bible. But the great here, it probably could be better be translated powerful is Yahweh beyond the border of Israel. He's not, his domain is not just Israel, but it it extends, his power extends through all the earth. Okay, then the second exchange, which uh, basically will now go into chapter two, um, but starts at chapter one, verse six. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Okay, that is understandable, okay? Um, And if I then am a father, where is my honor? Okay, if I'm a father to you, why are you not honoring me? And if I'm a master to you, where is my fear? Okay, if so if you're my servants, why do you not fear me, right? So if I am a father and a master to you, why do you not give me honor? Why do you not give me fear? And then we find that this is especially directed at the priests, priests who despise my name. And the priests say, how have we despised your name? Now, let me point out here, that in these exchanges, when Israel speaks, the questions that they respond with have are have obvious answers, right? How have you loved us? Well, it's obvious. Don't you know the history of Israel? And now, how have we despised your name? Well, you don't have to look very far. Uh, by offering polluted food upon my altar. Now, we might think of this merely as like ritually unclean, um, but that does not seem to be what merely what this is saying like it's not like um uh you have like somebody who touched a dead person touched this animal that you've brought to the altar although that might be in view too but the word is gaal which is um 
only starts being used at about the time of Isaiah. So like you do see a little bit of a development in the language of biblical Hebrew. And um, and so as opposed to the typical like Pentateuch words for unclean or impure, words like nidah or tameh, here you have ga'al, which seems to have as part of its meaning like moral corruption, uh, that kind of defilement that, that is, is more moral in nature than it is ritual in nature. Although those two categories blend into each other, that they did not have this sharp dichotomy be- between them that we would tend to be. Like sometimes you hear about like, you know, you have the ritual laws of the Old Testament, the ethical laws, and then the civil laws. That there, those it doesn't have those tidy div- distinctions. But the food is polluted that it's offering on my altar. Um, that you've been altering, so that's that's the problem. That's that's how you're dishonoring me. That's how you're 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 not giving me honor. Um, and 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 you still plead in ignorance. How have we polluted you? I mean, you, we're putting the animals you said to put on them, and uh, and by saying that Yahweh's table may be despised is God's answer, right? By by permitting people to despise God's table, table here probably meaning the altar. And here's what I mean. You offer blind animals in sacrifice. You offer animals that are lame and sick. Now, it doesn't take a lot of knowledge of Leviticus to know what's wrong with that picture, right? Because a lot of the animals specifically are instructed to to offer unblemished animals, meaning that you can't just take these animals that would otherwise be good for nothing and be like, well, basically, we would probably just— just just off them any these are the ones we want the least no sacrifice needs to be giving god your best think all the way back to Cain and Abel right Abel offers the 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 best of the animals on the altar um and Cain uh doesn't it just gives any old offering right and that's an issue it's not giving god their best and not merely that but specifically like you're not even supposed to offer these kinds of animals they should be unblemished sacrifices uh, and and then he he has a pretty good object lesson here. Present that to your governor, and and will he accept you or show you favor? So would you bring that to like a to mere men, even like you know the important guy of your city? Are you saying like no? You would never think of that. You would bring him the good stuff, like and so if you would bring him the good stuff, some guy that you're trying to to possess because he because he has political power over you what what's this that you're bringing to me you're offering the quality of your offering that you bring to god and we should think of this with anything that we might offer god in our lives um reflects the quality of that reflects what we think about god and how much we value god and uh and now so having done all this offering these kinds of animals on your altar entreat the favor of god okay there's a little bit of sarcasm maybe here that he may be gracious to us. Notice the kind of shift in, uh, you know, this is Malachi speaking. Of course, it is the word of God, but, you know, it's Malachi speaking. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says Yahweh of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. Like, you guys might as well close up shop. God would rather them not do it at all than them do it in this way. And then he makes another point. He says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. They will offer in every place incense to my name and a pure offering, unlike what you're doing, right? So don't you know what I have 
destined to do, to bring all the people's, peoples to me. The nations will honor me, and you can be part of that or you cannot. And in verse 14, cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it. Okay, so you want everybody to see, oh, I'm going to bring God my best. But when it actually comes time to make the sacrifice, brings the Lord what is blemished. And then this summary of basically the two points. For I am a great king, okay? And you're giving me stuff that you wouldn't even imagine bringing to your governor, verse 8. So that's the first point. And my name will be feared among the nations, okay? And again, you the nations will honor me, and you, Israel, can be part of that or not. Uh, and then this, this kind of uh, exchange continues. So now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take heart to give honor to my name, then I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings— so remember, that's one of the things that the priests are said to do. The most famous one, of course, in Numbers chapter 6, the Lord uh, bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, right? That's like what the how the priests are to bless the people. I'm actually going to make, I'm going to curse your blessings. Your blessings are not going to work and the people are going to, who who come to you for them will be cursed because of you. I, your ministry will be ruined. And in fact, they're already experiencing this. This is why things are already miserable, right? I have already cursed them, he says, because you do not lay it to heart. Um, and I will rebuke your offspring. And here's here's uh, an interesting thing. Spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings. Okay. Again, how lousy, how, how little regard they have for the Lord's offerings, that they're not even cleaning them properly so that dung is on the altar. Um, and so you shall know that I have set this command to you that my covenant with Levi will stand, right? So you guys are here because I have a covenant with your father, Levi, the whole tribe of Levi, uh, here being called Levi. Um, and my covenant is one of peace, and it was a covenant of fear, okay? The two go hand in hand. You fear me, and you have peace. If you respect me, if you do what I say, if you care about what I say rather than any other concern in the world, then you will have peace. And Levi understood this. Once again, this is speaking collectively of Levi, right? Because Levi, the actual patriarch, did not really get this. The, the rather, it is in the generation that came out of out of Egypt and the and and the them being on the side of the Lord, right? When the peop, other people were going in into idolatry into idolatry. Um, so he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, right? His task to teach the people. Uh, he walked with me in peace. So true instruction and walking with me in peace. So both his words and his deeds, he turned away from iniquity. Um, for the lips of a priest ought to be guarding knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger from me, from Yahweh of hosts. But you've turned aside and caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, and so I make you despised and abased before all people um, because you show – and here's not only in these like, you know, sure, go ahead and bring uh, bring a blemished animal, but also note how it ends here in verse 9, but you also show partiality in your instruction. Okay, so the first exchange – is basically talking about an ungrateful people who can't see how God God loves them. Um, the second exchange is priests who don't care. And now we get the third exchange, 
which is both spiritual and literal adultery. Okay, so starting in verse 10, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Okay, so we all, and, and yes, of course, why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Notice the third person wording here, kind of, again, Malachi talking to them in the name of the Lord, of course, of course, bringing him the word of the Lord, but kind of like speaking to his people saying this. Judah has been faithfulness, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of Yahweh, which which he loves, which Yahweh loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. And this could this could be um, that he they're marrying women who are not Israelites who uh, worship other gods. Uh, but here, I think um, it's just as readily, and I think probably. Uh, more commonly understood as having as the, the notion of spiritual adultery, which we've seen so prominently in the uh, in the prophets. And um, may the, may may Yahweh cut off the tents of Jacob from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to Yahweh of hosts. So if you think you can do that and bring offerings to the Lord, you've got another thing coming. And then the second thing they do is described in verses thirteen through sixteen. So you cover Yahweh's altars with tears, weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So you're all upset because God is not showing you favor. And you you know, think of the imagery, imagery here, right? Cut, crying all over. The, why, why, why does he not? Why does he not show me favor? Um, well, here's what, here's another reason, because Yahweh was witness between you and the wife of your youth. To whom you've been faithless, and she is your companion by uh, and your wife by covenant. Now, this is a very interesting uh, statement. Again, notice how the question that the people are asking has a very obvious answer. Just look at at your life. Um, the fact that you have abandoned your wife, the wife of your youth, the wife whom you were originally married to. So, again, literal adultery. And again, this is a very interesting verse because here. We have the uh, the institution of marriage actually referred to as a covenant. We commonly speak of it as such, uh, but the Bible isn't calling marriage a covenant agreement left and right. But here, it very clearly does. Um, you know, you could get those concept. The concepts are definitely there. The idea of like vows and obligations and a continuing relationship formalized in front of witnesses and stuff. But um, but here, you actually have the covenantal language applied to it. Um, did he not make them one? Okay, notice how that reflects Genesis 2, the two shall become one flesh, with a portion of the spirit in their union. I think that's a maybe a lost way that we don't really think much about in our marriages, um, the way we think of them today, that the Lord's spirit is, a portion of the Lord's spirit is given to you to form this bond with this other human being. And, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring, okay? Another dimension of, of marriage, that a godly marriage will produce a new generation of people who love the Lord. Um, so guard yourselves in your spirit. Let no one be faithless to the wife of your youth, okay? It takes effort, right? Marriage is not just automatic. You don't just automatically stay head over heels for the person your whole life. And if that's what you think love is, then you've got another thing coming, okay? Love is very much a choice, right? And it's not always easy. But that marriage is not just between you and this other person. It's between the two of you and the Lord. 
right? The portion of his spirit is there. And so marriage is worth the effort that it takes for it to remain good. And I, I think it's important to remember at this juncture that the Bible does say plenty of other stuff about marriage, about how to uh, love one another and how to respect one another. Think, think like Ephesians 5, right? And that and that you're actually to to care for the other person's needs more than you care for your own. And this goes especially for husbands, right? Because not not loving your wife is not loving your own body because she's one flesh with you, right? So there's a lot more other stuff in this. Like it's not just saying like, uh, well, you're you're in a marriage you no longer want to be in, but you know, uh, tough. No, like there there are things that you can do to actually flourish in your marriage. Now, I just want to I want to just underscore at this point that there are biblical grounds for divorce and for separation. Okay, and so this should not be construed in any way as saying that if you're in an abusive relationship that you are obligated to stay there and to be abused. No, you should absolutely um, go and tell someone, tell a pastor, a competent pastor, or somebody, a, a trusted counselor, um, somebody who both values marriage and values difficult marriages and will challenge you, but also somebody who uh, who understands that uh, that it is not your obligation to stay in a marriage in which the other person has essentially forsaken their vows by uh, mistreating you and harming you. And one of the things that can be difficult about being in a situation like that is that the person who is being abused will not always see it and will not always name it. So, um, you know, you need to be able to to talk um, uh, to people. And by the way, the spouse telling you you can't talk to other people if you are in a situation which you suspect may be abusive is absolutely baloney. Uh, you should be able to talk to trusted people. It doesn't mean air the laundry before the world. It doesn't mean go and make a post on social media about how much your spouse stinks. But find that one person, that t- those two people, right, who care deeply about marriage, care deeply about you, and is honest enough to see the thing as it is and to advise you uh, in a way that upholds God's standard. But the thrust of this text absolutely is you should f- – fight to keep your marriage. And here, I I don't really even get a sense that it's like, you know, people are trying to get out of like terrible marriages. It's it's just like a lot of times adultery is just, you know, a person wanders and gets curious and falls for another person, even if, you know, no marriage is perfect. But even if the marriage is, is going well and decently, people still stray. And, you know, this is especially aimed at that. Uh, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says Yahweh, the God of Israel, covers his garment in violence. It is violence to this covenant that you had made to this person and to the Lord. So guard yourselves in your spirit, okay, that it takes effort, and do not be faithless. You need to think of the abandoning of your marriage to be as an act of faithfulness. Uh, Again, unless it clearly meets the biblical criteria for divorce— such as we find in Jesus's teachings, such as we find in 1 Corinthians 7, but certainly the way that people just dispense of marriage, like as if like, oh, I just am not happy in it anymore or something like that. That's, that is not grounds for divorce, just simply feeling dissatisfaction or wanting something else. That is faithlessness. That is the forsaking of vows that you've made before God and for another person. And it is an extremely dishonorable a mindset to fall into. Okay, let's go now to Psalm 143, another Psalm of David, and another 
uh, petitionary psalm, and we've seen a bunch of these basically since Psalm 140. Um, Hear my prayer, O Yahweh, give ears, give ear to my pleas for mercy, um, and rather and uh, you know each of these are unique in its own way, and this one I think is is very helpful in terms of the the reality of. You know, I'm asking God for help, but I'm also aware that I don't deserve his grace. I don't deserve his mercy. So there is, number one, like, what do we do with that? Well, number one, we acknowledge that it is, even if we were, like, killing it spiritually, right? Uh, First of all, like, nobody kills it spiritually. All of us fall, right? And our best works of righteousness are, um, are, are not impressing God. Okay, so pretty much the the sinner like like the you know the tax collector who ascends the mountain in contrast with the pharisee right um is just able to see this better and um and so the only reason god answers prayers is not because we deserve it but because of the two attributes here in your faithfulness answer me in your righteousness okay his faithfulness and his righteousness is the reason why you know we can expect to be heard when we pray um and so that's like the one thing about this this plea that I think teaches us a lot that it is because of God's faithfulness and righteousness that we can expect to be heard. But then secondly, enter not into judgment with your servant for no one living is righteous before you. And not only does that, you know, is that another very helpful text for understanding the universal sinfulness of the entire human race, but it's also much more personal than that that you know this is what mankind is is like and i am one of them and i have and you are justly angry with my sin i understand that and so there is an element of confession in any prayer for god uh, to help um and then we find out you know what david is worried about and certainly he mentions this in a lot of his psalms the enemy has pursued my soul he's crushed my life to the ground made me sit in darkness like those long dead Therefore, my spirit faints within me and my heart is appalled. And again, there's a lot of different incidents in David's life that we know about, let alone the ones that we don't, that we might attach this to. I remember the days of old. Now, that we might say, well, what days of old? Like when? And the two big options here, I think, are either, you know, my days of old, like perhaps when things were going well, uh, when it was clear that your hand of blessing was on me and I was, you know, seeing stuff go well in my life. Um, or it could be days of old as in like God's history um, and uh, like, like you know, bringing, uh, bringing the people out of Egypt, redeeming us from slavery and things like that, and, and even establishing your covenant with me. And uh, I actually, I suspect, I don't know for sure, but I suspect that it is the latter, that it is God's work from the, the ways that in which God has shown himself to be in in favor of his people, uh, because the only other time this expression, days of old, occurs in the Psalms, uh, occurs in the Old Testament at all, is Psalm 77.5, which is a Psalm of Asaph, so it's, it's a different uh, author here, but uh, there in that context, if we look at that, uh, when, you know, he muses on the days of old, he eventually gets to the, 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 the uh, makes it specific. And there he's talking about the redemption of Jacob. So, you know, I think the evidence weighs slightly in that, but that like, and, and so here you have, you, you know, David's in it, he's in the stuff right now. And he has the choice, like we always do when we are in the stuff, uh, to, 
meditate on our present experience and try to infer God's love from that, or we can put our focus on God's works in history, those places which, again, as I as I mentioned in when we were just talking about Malachi, um, when those those things that God does to explicitly show us that He loves us, like the true acts of love, the redemption of Israel, and the and and the then the great redemption, the redemption of us from, uh, of us from sin in Christ. So I meditate on those. I can choose to look at my circumstances, or I can choose the rock solid evidence that God loves me and the things that he wants me to consider when I doubt that. Um, I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the works of your hands. And notice it's not just thinking back and acknowledging it. It's remembering, meditating, ponder. It's stretching out my hands to you and thirsting for things to get better, thirsting for your blessing to come back, the goodies, the presents. No, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land. And it I, I think the imagery is here is interesting here, right? It's not like as if it were in a parched land and I'm walking through the desert and my tongue is as dry as sandpaper. But no, like that dry land itself, right, is thirsty for water. You know, it's it's cracking because it's so dry. That is what my soul is like, uh, desiring to be quenched by you and your spirit, Lord. So answer me quickly. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love. I, I want to hear news that, that you have done good, that you have helped, that you have come through and answered my prayer, for in you I trust. Um, and then there is a lot here about guidance, right? Because when we're in the stuff, we might not know exactly what we're supposed to do. So make me know the way that I should go, for to you I lift up my soul." Then you get delivered me from my enemies, O Yahweh, to you I've fled for refuge. And then again, the guidance, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. And for your name's sake, O Yahweh, again, what, why, why do I expect to be heard? Because of your righteousness, because of your steadfast love, uh, because of your faithfulness, Um for your name's sake, O Yahweh, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. In your steadfast love, cut off my enemies, and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. Okay, let's go now to Revelation chapter 6. So now Jesus, who has been shown to be the only, the only one in all of existence worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, begins to do just that. He opens the seals. And the four, the first four seals bring forth four horsemen. And just having recently read the book of Zechariah, that should sound familiar. Four horsemen uh, riding on different colored horses, even more so. Uh, this imagery is taken from Zechariah 1 and Zechariah 4. Now, it's not to say that the colors correspond with one another. Indeed, they didn't even correspond in Zechariah. But, you know, that idea is clearly um, clearly uh, taken in some sense from Zechariah's prophecy. And uh, each of the um, – well, well, each except for the last one who is a uh, um, uh, kind of unique one is, uh, is holding something in its hand, in his hand, and we can make – uh, tentative gestures as to what each one represents based on what is said by them. 
Also, another point of similarity uh, in in the cracking of these first four seals that we're looking at today is that as each one is cracked, there are four of them, and there are four living creatures that we saw before the throne, and each one takes its turn announcing uh, a different horseman. So the first one is cracked, and he says, I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, and they each say the same thing, come, okay? And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow. Remember I said the first three will all have something in their hands. And a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So this horse apparently, or horsemen on a horse, um, apparently uh, represents uh, military conquest. Okay, notice a crown is on his head. So this is a state doing this. This is a king doing this. And he's holding a bow, which is not a typical weapon like if you're looking to rob someone or something. No, this is this is a weapon of an army. So I think we can say with a uh, fair degree of tentative certainty that if we want to say what this horse represents, it represents war. And uh, then the second seal is broken. And the second living creature says, come. And out comes another horse, this one bright red which appears to signify bloodshed. And uh, its rider is permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. So this is, you know, murder and killing, not done by a state, done by brother against brother, friend against friend, uh, person against stranger, just, you know, that kind of killing. Um, and he has a great sword in his hand. That's what he's got in his hand. And then the third seal is broken, and the third living creature says, Come, and behold, a black horse. And black here apparently stands for famine, and he's got a pair of scales in his hand. So we've seen uh, a bow, a sword, and now scales. Now, well, how, does, how does scales represent famine? We're about to see. So the voice to kind of uh, the vo a voice that accompanies this rider says, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. So I think anybody hearing this in the first century would immediately say, well, that's a ripoff. Okay. In other words, food is so scarce that these prices, as far as we can tell, are about 10 to 12 times what they would have cost at the time of the writing of this, these things. Um, and, you know, the three quarts of barley here, obviously being the cheaper thing, barely enough to feed a small family for a denarius. And uh, and the call to not harm the oil and wine is a little bit more difficult, but apparently it seems that this is kind of begging not to destroy the crops, right? So you've got oil, olive trees, you've got wine, wine vineyards, um, things that, you know, you're kind of like hanging on to as a famine devastates the land. and um, and so the scales in his hand are represent the selling of this highly inflated food as a result of famine. And that's why I say the black horse likely represents famine. And then finally, <clears throat> the fourth seal, the voice of is, is broken and the voice of the fourth living creature says, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse. Now, some uh, translations, I believe, will say a green horse at this point. The the pale, the pale is actually the Greek word from which we get the word chlorine, 
and um, it is uh, it's used in some text to describe the underside of a leaf. Like you know how a green leaf will be like have a really light pale kind of uh, a pale green to it, as opposed to the top, which is a darker, richer green. That appears to be the color of this horse, which seems to symbolize kind of just death in general, right? Because he's given authority over a fourth of the earth. That's a lot to kill with the sword, with famine and pestilence and with wild beasts. So, you know, the the common denominator between all those is that they're fatal. And, um, and the rider is named here. His name is Death. So even you know, a clearer indication of what this symbolizes. And Hades follows him, followed him, the abode of the dead. Uh, death and Hades are mentioned together in Revelation three times. Remember in chapter one, verse 18, Jesus said that he had the keys of death and Hades. Um, here, it's mentioned here. And then it's also going to be mentioned in chapter 20, verses 13 and 14, where, the, where death and Hades give up the dead who are in them and uh, then are uh, subsequently thrown themselves into the lake of fire, death and Hades are, that is. Okay, so those are the four horsemen. And, um, you know, uh, the question, of course, is, well, this is fr- all frightening and scary stuff. What does it represent? What what is are we being told? And um, these are the things that humanity struggles the most with, right? These are like the most terrible events that humanity encounters, as a result of human fallenness and human sin. This is where our sin eventually leads, and this is the world that we live in. And so I think, you know, I said I have a little bit of an eclectic approach. I would see this as kind of a little bit uh, in line with the idealist approach, not so much what will happen or what did happen, but what does happen, that this is the, the world that we live in that contains these things. Um, these things under the sovereignty of God, okay, that, and I think it's important to remember that God uses evil events to bring about good. Um, we see that plenty in the Bible, and, you know, just for his purposes in general, for morally justified reasons, I think is the re- what, what we would say, and of course, we will have a journey through Scripture read um, on that topic. By the way, I, I've noticed that some people, I've been a little bit confusing. It's read R-E-D, not read as in I've already read the Bible. So, um, And uh, I got the graphic for it today, which I'm very excited about. Um, at any rate, uh, we will talk about the, the problem of, of suffering uh, in an episode on that for sure, maybe even a couple episodes. But back on track here, I, I think that um, that's how you know I would understand it as kind of just the reality of the world that we live in that and and notice that there's nothing here to indicate that this is specifically persecution against the church um however there is that in the fifth seal so the fifth seal is opened up and he sees not horses coming forward but under the altar that is in heaven so he's called his his attention is called to something going on in the throne room in which he is standing And he sees the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, for the witness they had borne. So these are people whose death is, they they didn't just die as Christians. They died because of their testimony to Jesus. And remember, we talked about how the concept of witness or testimony or bearing witness is beginning to shade into the concept of being a martyr, of being killed for it. We saw that with... um, uh, the figure, uh, the guy uh, Antipas, who is mentioned in chapter two, verse thirteen, in the letter to Pergamum. 
and um and at at this point right in in the kind of the visions he's seeing like bearing witness to Jesus is a big liability okay but like they've been killed for it and there is you know seemingly you know that's is that the end of the story no it's not but we're not at the point where the god's answer to that is given yet um and they cried out with a loud voice o sovereign lord holy and true how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Remember, we've already seen that expression in 310, those who dwell on the earth, meaning sinful humanity. Um, they are calling out here for God's, both for God's just judgment and for the vindication of, of his name, right? That we, we've borne testimony to Jesus and the world has killed us for it. Um, and they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. So they are in the presence of God. They are... In heaven itself, they are um, uh, uh, given the robes of heaven, the white robes of heaven, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So this has happened, and it will continue to happen. It is teaching. This is teaching us about what we are to experience in this age. And then finally today, the sixth seal is open, and there is a great earthquake, and you've got these images, right? Um, three very prominent images. So number one, the sun becomes black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And uh, uh, this is an image that is pulled from various passages in the Old Testament, and I often sing- signal it, right? Because we contend these are this is one of those places in Revelation where you could be like, well, what is he actually seeing? And you know, the idea is like maybe he's seeing something in the future and he doesn't he's never seen an airplane or you know, you get this with like the locusts and helicopters, and that's the best he can do to understand. No, the the primary place we could see pretty clearly that this is coming from is the Old Testament. And so particularly the book of Joel, Joel chapter two. So in Joel two, ten through eleven, it says The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, the stars withdraw their shining, Yahweh utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great, he who executes his word is powerful, for the day of Yahweh is great and very awesome, who can endure it? And then you go forward a few verses to to verses 30 and 32, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The, sh- the sun shall be turned to darkness, notice Peter cites this in Acts 2, and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Now, a point that I made in passing when we read this in the Old Testament, and you may not have um, you know, registered the significance of it for this, is that this is figurative imagery to describe the cataclysmic overturning of the of the world order. It is not a picture of these things literally happening or even things that look like them happening. This is the way that God, you know, portrays these events that are coming and these events in Joel are talking about the judgment that is coming on Judah, right? It's not talking about um you know that's the day of the Lord for Joel. Um uh, that's not to say that Joel doesn't have things in it that 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 indicate that 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 pattern is going to be replicated in the future. Um, 
in a in a typological sort of way, a kind of a typology of judgment. But um, that is how those those figures are u- are used there, and I see no reason to see them differently here. Same thing with the next one. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So the sky vanished like a like a scroll. And again, sometimes you hear, is this a, a nuclear mushroom cloud that he's seeing or something? No. Um, we read in Isaiah 34, 4, all the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll and all their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Um, so yeah, like again, that that is describing a, like a real thing. It's essentially another type of imagery denoting essentially what we what we saw in in Joel, and then um, and then finally the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful. Okay, those who dwell in security or or who you know call the shots and you know, you, you'd expect them to be able to do something if something bad is happening, as well as everyone under under them, slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And uh, and again, Isaiah two nineteen, And the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord, and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the works, uh, the earth. And I think verse 20 is also important there. And that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship. Like, forget these things, we're out of here. Um, so what we have a picture of here, I think, is the evil that mankind is capable of, symbolized in the first four horsemen, and then we have the uh, suffering that God's people undergo, and then we have the reality that God's judgment is here, it's happening, and what will those who hate God do? And so in a sense, this is a picture of all of human history unfolding, and we will see the conclusion to this set of seals tomorrow. Um, But until then, as always, thank you for being with me. I look forward to being with you tomorrow. And until then, keep reading scripture. Take care and bye-bye.